welcome to the Quantum Feedback Loop podcast. I'm your host, James Myers, and I also publish the Quantum Record. I was pleased to meet with Alec Kumjian, head of software engineering of the Asteroid Institute. In this episode, Alec speaks about the B612 Foundation's mission to detect and map asteroids and other space objects that could pose a threat to Earth. Alec provides some fascinating details of the efforts underway for planetary defense, outlining the development of the Institute's Atom software platform that uses observational data to predict the paths of objects over very long periods of time. It was fascinating to learn how much is being done to protect the Earth and how much more can be done. And I hope you learn as much from this discussion as I did. Well, hello, Alec. Welcome to the Quantum Feedback Loop podcast. And I'm really interested to learn about your work for the B612 Foundation and the Asteroid Institute. Thank you, James. Uh, really happy to be here. And I, I love talking about what we're doing. Well, that's great. So maybe to begin with, if you could tell us a little bit about the mission of the B612 Foundation and its Asteroid Institute, and then also what your role is. Uh, I understand you're leading a team of scientists and engineers for it. Yeah, ab absolutely. Uh, so uh, the B612 Foundation is a nonprofit organized around the purpose of planetary defense specifically. So uh, namely preventing asteroids and other objects from impacting the Earth. And the idea behind the, the program Asteroid Institute is to get together software engineers and researchers to develop the tools in order to accomplish that goal. And I understand that the Institute's uh, program, the Asteroid Discovery and Analysis Mapping Program called ADAM, that's, I guess, an innovation of the Institute, is it? It's it's not, uh, like, is, has anybody else tried to do anything like this? So ADAM is the name of our kind of hosted compute platform. You know, it encompasses a variety of data sets and software services, and it's it's essentially the uh, you know, the umbrella under which we are trying to build out all the foundational pieces that we will need in order to achieve kind of the ultimate goal, which is this idea of this generating a map of the solar system, which is kind of what you need to do in order to know if there are objects heading your way. And and so with this map, um, I guess to the extent that we have a really accurate map, we would know of potential threats to the Earth then I guess that leads to a question of how we defend the earth from those threats. Yeah. So those are kind of, uh, those are kind of the two sides of the coin, so to speak. Right. Uh, right. And, and B612, you know, has broadly work on topics on both those sides and the asteroid Institute at the moment, at least is mostly focused on basically that discovery and tracking side of things. Um, you know, we already kind of collectively as a species largely know about, many of the objects in the solar system, in particular, a lot of the very big ones, uh, but there are still gaps in our knowledge there. And so uh, we kind of have to take this holistic approach where, you know, we're not just taking those known objects and trying to get a better understanding of where they're going to be, which is its own whole kind of problem. But then uh, kind of more foundationally, out of the data sets, astronomical data sets that are out there, how do we extract the most knowledge out of those and discover the most objects so that we can then into the future, try to predict where they're going to be. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And, and I want to talk a little bit about the science of that and what's involved in that. Um, but I wonder first, I mean, just maybe if you could sort of position it for us in terms of how many objects are out there that we know about and how many are hitting the earth regularly? And I ask this question because, you know, I'm based in Toronto and actually 
not too long ago, there was a rock from outer space that came and struck not too far from the city here. And so that kind of hit home literally, I guess. And uh, so I'm wondering, I mean, I think a lot of these are small objects, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so uh, why I'm probably not the foremost expert on the ongoing statistics, but to kind of like paint a picture broadly, you know, basically there are a variety of different populations of objects of different, you know, mass and energy that they have. And uh, everything from the, believe it or not, there are, um, we are constantly being bombarded with micrometeors all the time, right? Like tiny <laughs> molecular size objects com coming through our atmosphere and being studied and, and collected all the way through um, you know, things like uh, the Chelyabinsk event, which was uh, when when a very large meteor uh, exploded um, in the sky and shattered all of the windows, all of the glass in that area to, you know, the kind of cataclysmic, popularly known dinosaur ending size objects, which my understanding is that, you know, roughly over the history of the Earth, objects like that may have hit, you know, every 50 to 150 million years or so. And so, uh, you know, we know about, we believe theoretically, basically are tracking all of the world ending size objects out there, and unless there were something very unusual to come, uh, say, from out of the solar system. Uh, but then it's kind of, you get down in size, we know a smaller and smaller percentage of, say, um, things that have the energy that could cause serious damage for cities or, uh, you know, and then smaller and smaller sizes. So, uh, you know, objects of various sizes do hit every now and then. I don't think we have to worry about anything world ending, uh, <laughs> but there are still objects out there that have, could have significant negative impact and, and, and world implication. And so we want to kind of complete from the, you know, 60% of those objects we believe track to close to a hundred percent. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And actually, you mentioned Chelyabinsk, which I think, I guess, was in 2011, I think, in Russia. That sounds uh, correct. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And and that one, I guess, kind of came out of nowhere. There was no warning for it. And I guess, to right. the and I guess to the extent that your project is to map the trajectory of these objects in space, we would have more warning of things like that. And I guess there was, it was fortunate, I guess, that there was no um, loss of life, I don't think, in the Chelyabinsk incident, but, you know, it, it could easily... Right. It could easily happen. So it's an important project for sure. And interesting, actually, you know, now that uh, experiment, when was it last year or the year before um, with the asteroid deflection that actually, you know, the, the probe that they sent out to deflect it. So we actually, with this knowledge, I guess we can actually do something about it maybe now. Yeah. And so uh, this is not an area that I am uh, extremely knowledgeable about, but yeah. So when, with the DART mission, part of it was just to see when you have an impactor uh, going into one of these objects, like what happens because we still, there's still a lot of unknowns about say the, the physical construction of many of the objects in our solar system. And so, you know, even knowing like, you know, is it kind of like a loose pile of rocks and sand model, or is it more like a solid object model? And so what happens when you have this impact um, predicting what's going to happen is, is extremely difficult. And, you know, for practically speaking, for preventing an impact long-term, you need, ideally, you need to be able to say with confidence where it's going to be years in the future. And you're trying to, you know, your ability to change its, uh, velocity is, uh, very limited. 
And so what you aim for is a small change in velocity years in the future in order to, you know, just wholly avoid where the earth was going to be at a particular moment in time. Yeah. So it's more about almost more about time than speed and location. Yeah, that's really interesting to think about that time dimension of it all. And I guess how long, how far away some of these could be, but how just a very small change in direction over over time could make all the difference. So yeah, really interesting. And so I, I wanted to maybe just start talking a little bit about the science and the complexities of this. And so I understand your education was both in computer science and physics. And I'm just wondering what are some of the innovative way those two branches of science in particular are being brought to bear now um, on, on this research and work? Yeah. And I think part of that, bringing those two areas together is kind of largely the idea behind Asteroid Institute, which is uh, that there are, you know, with these, with the scale of types of science that uh, we are trying to do, uh, you kind of, you can't uh, leave the algorithms that you are running, uh, say on, on your data sources to just whatever works. You actually have to consider kind of core foundational computer science topics, like how, uh, how efficient is the algorithm, right? We talk about like big O notation and complexity. And, um, if you are running this software in a way where, uh, it has to, you know, the number of calculations that it has to perform, they can balloon very quickly. And so the computer science end of things is looking at those with kind of some um, very foundational ideas behind computer science and you know how you can do things more efficiently. Are, the data, are there data structures that will kind of fundamentally change how you do the science? And then of course, on the physics side, you know, there's all sorts of um, tools that we use, whether it's like propagating where an object is going to be in time or doing uh, fitting an orbit based off of observations. Uh, there, there are many shortcuts, right? There's numerical shortcuts and analytical shortcuts. And a lot of the time uh, you can write software that looks good, but the what it's producing is maybe like non-physical or non-real <laughs> on the other side. And so uh, in everything we do, you know, you're, you're looking at it from... The perspective of generating results that are real physical models. I can imagine so many calculations would be involved with all of these sort of interacting bodies in space and, you know, gravitational interactions and all of this. And so, you know, the team of the, the group that you're leading, I guess, would involve people from a number of different disciplines, like, you know, maybe astronomy. And can you give us a sense of sort of the, the range of, of knowledge that's being brought to bear on this question? Yeah, ab absolutely. So uh, we we have a wonderful uh, but small team at Asteroid Institute. So uh, there are essentially, not to bucket people too much, but we have three software engineers, not including myself, and then we have uh, a research scientist. So those those software engineers are Kathleen Kiker, Nate Tellis, and Spencer Nelson. Uh, and then we have uh, Joachim Moyens, who's our, he's our researcher at the University of Washington. Uh, and then, and then there's myself, and then we also have a handful of volunteers who, uh, very dedicated volunteers who help us with a variety of projects as well. And so, you know, that expertise, uh, you know, it ranges from people who have worked at um, telescopes or for uh, defense companies or uh, just hot, you know, in the case of, uh, uh, say myself, just like uh, hobbyists in terms of as far as the astronomy goes. 
Uh, and then you have uh, like Yaki Moyens, who's our, our researcher, um, who's coming from the Dirac Institute at University of Washington, where they do kind of the, the very heavy astronomy uh, and computation. But we are a team where we are, you know, all trying to wear various hats, I guess, trying to be interdisciplinary in, in that approach. We're not, we're not heavily segmented into our areas of expertise. It's very collaborative. And what are some of the practical hurdles um, that you're working on to to overcome in reaching the goals of the Atom Project and, you know, more generally planetary defense? Like, what are some of the biggest hurdles in that whole project? Sure. Uh, well, some of them, uh, unsurprisingly, have to do with data. So um, first, we need to discover the objects, and that involves collecting as much data as we can. Uh, so right now... Adam has a, a catalog of moving point sources. These are detections of, of light in the sky that uh, are likely to be from moving objects. So we've already, this is already data sets that have filtered out all the static sources, all the stars, basically. And, and uh, that comes from a variety of different sources, right? It comes from telescopic archives like Noir Lab source catalog. It comes from active surveys like the Zwicky Transient Facility. Uh, and so the, some of the, some of the challenges that we have are just like practical software engineering issues, right? Like, uh, in getting in all these data sets, not all these systems are set up for kind of bulk retrieval of that data. Um, you know, we work closely with those other organizations to, to absorb them. There's making sure they're accurate, right? Uh, we've, we've had to identify issues like observations being marked, say at the beginnings of exposures instead of like the more technically correct uh, middle of an exposure time. Uh, and that makes a big difference when you're trying to precisely look, you know, locate the, the position in time uh, of an object. So there's challenges like that, um, kind of like data engineering challenges. There are algorithmic ones. So, um, so we have a discovery algorithm called Thor, uh, which I'd love to talk about more. Sure. And uh, we are, one of the things we are doing is uh, adapting it better to orbits of near-Earth objects, since obviously that's of concern to us. And part of the problem is that the way those objects move and the shape of their orbits are, um, they're nonlinear. They're more, they're more curved when we look at them. And this causes the way that Thor works to essentially, uh, it requires a lot more computational resources in order to kind of try to pull those out and, and discover them. Uh, and so, you know, there's challenges like that. And then of course, um, getting other practical organizational challenges, getting, making sure we have the funding that we need to run the computational jobs that we have. Um, and we have a variety of great supporters and, and, uh, you know, we work with organizations like Google to help provide us some of those resources. That's great to hear. And so, yeah, maybe tell us a little bit more about Thor. So this is part of the Atom project. What, what does Thor stand for? Yeah, so uh, Thor is a bit, bit of a mouthful, trackletless heliocentric orbit recovery. And uh, Thor gives in a category of algorithms that we call linking algorithms. Uh, and the idea behind this is that uh, when you have telescopes pointed to the sky and you are taking pictures of points of light, you essentially have this giant game of connect the dots where you're trying to figure out what points of light between different images belong to the same object. And so kind of the, traditionally the way this is done is that a telescope will take two images close together in time of the same point in space, and you will get 
small movements of points of light, which are relatively easy to find between those two images, right? Because you have only a handful of dots moving and they're they're moving very relatively short distances. And from those you generate, you call those tracklets. And then you group those tracklets together, maybe over multiple nights or something. And that will, you know, on the other end, you've discovered an object. So what uh, Thor does, which is a little bit unique, is that it does not, it doesn't depend on the cadence of the telescope. So you don't need to take those two images so close to each other. Instead, you can take virtually an arbitrary data set, such as, for example, um, the deep energy camera DECAM, which is not meant for solar system science. They're not doing a cadence where they're, you know, tracking asteroids intentionally. So what Thor does differently, essentially, is you start with an assumption, which is test orbits. You take, you'd say, suppose there was an object that looks like this, and it was moving through, through space like this. You project those test orbits through your observations, where they are in time. And you're making assumptions about those observations too, like distance from the sun, as an example. And when you project that test orbit through those observations, and then you kind of, you map where those observations would be relative to the perspective of that test orbit, objects that are moving like that test orbit, they show up kind of as lines or clumps in that in that reference frame. And so we when we call those clusters. And so then what you can do is you just look for those clusters in the reference frame of the test orbit. And then you basically can move on to perform traditional orbit fitting on those observations. And then uh, when you have basically good matches, things that look physical and, and realistic, you now have theoretically an, an object discovery coming out the other side. Wow, that, that's fascinating. And so I guess it, as you said, it allows you to use more data sets, I guess, that aren't necessarily intended to be correlated to each other. So it's it's a way of establishing a correlation where there wasn't one before. That's, uh, yes, that's, that's right. And so um, the time between the observations is not, not as important. You can have, it can be a highly irregular, you know, cadence of those observations. And again, you can get them from data sets, which were generated, not, not meant to look for asteroids or other solar system bodies in, intentionally. And one of the things that we're hoping long-term with that is that you can actually free up, you know, surveys to do uh, other types of science um, spending less time kind of going back, generating those tracklets, but still discover the same amount of objects on the other side. And that can be, you know, very important for, you know, the amount of science that a, that a telescope can do. That's great. And it really sounds innovative in, in terms of, um, new ways of approaching such a large amount of data. It, it, you know, when you said connecting the dots, I had this image in my head of just so many dots out there to connect and, uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's great that uh, that we're able now to to really be, you know, I guess to really advance along that that science in a way that hasn't been done before. So, um, I'm just wondering, is there a particular milestone that you're working on now with Adam? Yes, uh, absolutely, and it relates to Thor, and I'm personally very excited about it. So, uh, in in the past couple of years, Yakim Moyens and the University of Washington and Asteroid Institute, they came out with the paper on Thor. And, um, and then shortly after that, you know, we ran Thor on a small subsample, a 30 day window of that Noir Lab source catalog data set and uh, discovered 104 asteroids out of it. 
And so since that time, uh, we've been basically getting ready to gear that up. And so this this past year, we've been working on some other foundational pieces, uh, namely a, a service called Recovery, which I can, I can talk about too, uh, which we use as kind of a sub component of Thor. Um, but now what we are doing is getting ready to run Thor on the remaining 99.8% of that NORLAB source catalog. So uh, that has involved making it more efficient and robust to errors and, you know, developing the tools that we need to kind of scale up on lots of machines in, in the cloud and perform a lot of computations. Well, and how long do you think that 98% or 99% of the catalog would take? Well, that all depends on how many simultaneous cores that we have running the job. The The great news is that it's highly parallel, right? So every test orbit that you're sending through the sky can be run as its own process on its own machine, basically. Uh, and so I think when we are running at full steam, so to speak, I, I would, I'm hoping, you know, sometime between uh, two to four weeks to crank through that whole data set, but it could be longer depending on, you know, how many resources we have available uh, in the cloud, like, you know, literal machines on on those systems that we have available to run, and also how expensive those those machines are, uh, unfortunately, factors into it as well. Yeah. yeah, that's always the case, I guess. And I guess to get a sense of the amount of data that you're looking at, obviously, you've indicated it's a, it's a large amount of data from many different sources. Um, are are you looking primarily just in the solar system or are you also looking outside the solar system? Well, so um, there's kind of a few ways of looking at that. So our ability to uh, look for certain objects, I mean, it's, it's within the solar system and um, what we can find is first limited by the limiting magnitude of the, of the source data sets, right? Like the source, the source telescopes. Um, which in some cases is quite good, again, because we're we're looking through even non, uh, non-traditional solar system data sets like from DECAM. Um, but in terms of what we find is also largely going to depend on those test orbits that we run through the system. And so uh, I don't believe we will be sending through too many test orbits that would be, uh, you know, it's it's really just the the range is the scope of the space of test orbits that is likely to exist within within our solar system. But, you know, there's always kind of interesting room to say, run through some highly unique and unusual orbits and kind of see what comes out the other side. Mm -hmm. And are you partnering with any other uh, institutions? Like uh, you mentioned the University of Washington, I think. Are, are there other institutions that are involved in this project? Yeah, so I mean, um, you know, we have University of Washington, we have the the specific research program through. Uh, we are not for this specific, well, so for the Noir Lab source catalog, you know, obviously we are working with them to the extent that they've been uh, very good at helping us collect, collect that data for us to use it in our uh, systems. Similarly, all the other organizations that we get our data from, whether it's uh, ZTF, um, we've been working with uh, Atlas program out of University of Hawaii, which is a bunch of uh, different telescopes, uh, SkyMapper, um, folks at Catalina. So these are these are all different organizations, uh, you know, mostly uh, telescopes that surveys that we've worked with and people that have graciously helped us with, you know, even providing like custom exports of, of their data. 
um, in order for us to ingest it. Uh, we Google has been a great partner. Uh, they've helped us not just in terms of making compute resources available to us, but uh, providing a lot of technical guidance. And you know, we've uh, held events where we meet up with folks at Google and and talk about the various problems and and um, kind of variety of different services and ways that we can expand our initial goals with with what they have available. Uh, and then we also work with organizations like the Minor Planet Center, which is, for those not familiar, is uh, like the clearinghouse of objects in the solar system. So when someone discovers a potential new object, they will submit it to the MPC and they will uh, essentially verify and and do a bunch of other things to to maintain that list of known objects. And so we've we've worked with them to as both a submitter and um, you know when we found odd discrepancies in, in data sets that have, uh, you know, working to correct uh, problems like that. And they've been a great, they've been a great group to work with. And so you, you mentioned pre-covery. So maybe if you could just talk about that. And then I wanted to ask maybe a little bit about machine learning. So maybe just start with pre-covery. Yeah. Uh, so the idea behind pre-covery is that typically you have an object you're already thinking about or many objects. Uh, and you would like to know if there are additional observations out there for this object. Um, and the reason you would wanna find additional observations is that when you have more observations of an object, you can now basically generate a more precise orbit for more accurate orbit, I should say, um, which can make a huge difference in terms of uh, where it is and especially for concerns such as planetary defense. Um, and so, you know, there, there are many institutions that kind of, they've, uh, have their own versions of recovery and, and there are other public recovery services available where you can take an orbit and basically get back a bunch of candidate images that may or may not contain, you know, a, a, a point source of, of the, the object in question. Adam's version of recovery is a little bit is is unique in in the sense that um so first thing is that and this is available for people to use they can go on our website and um, either look up a known object or put in a theoretical orbit of something and they can scan that the roughly 5.3 billion point source observations that we have for that and then what we do is we are able to actually in just minutes produce back not just the potential images, the potential exposures, but actual point sources uh, that may belong to, to that object. So um, typically what you would do is after getting your list of candidate images, you would then have to kind of scan through that and say, oh, where would my object be in this image? And is there a point source there? And what we're doing is we're essentially doing that for you. And we're saying, this is where it was predicted to be. You know, here's even the predicted velocity. So you can say like, oh, does the trail match up with with what I'm looking for and so uh so that's recovery and it doesn't have to be before the discovery which recovery implies it can actually be more recently so uh there's an example recently uh other folks at University of Washington and, and Vera Rubin telescope they used uh, a different linking algorithm called heliolink against the atlas data set and they discovered a potentially hazardous asteroid with it and then uh, we were able to then take that new object and run it through our recovery service. And we found a bunch of new observations uh, from ZTF in, in just a couple minutes. So that's kind of an example of what, what you might use recovery for. 
That's really interesting. And and so can the public go on and submit observations as well as other scientists? Yeah. So um, anyone can go on our website. We have basically a website demo version of Percovery where you can go in. Um, we make it convenient to, say, um, search the small bodies node for, say, like a named object. Or you can just put in the orbital elements by hand if you want, if there's, you know, something, maybe something different that you want to look for and run it through that recovery service. And then you'll get a page that has, you know, nice cutouts of all the different observations it found. And then we're, uh, we don't quite have it ready, but we are, you know, we're working on building a whole pipeline to try to make it easier for people to prepare submissions to that minor planet center off of new discoveries. So that would be kind of a tool or, or an interface where people can take not just recovery, but other things and do the necessary work to kind of validate and prepare the submissions so that uh, MPC can can look at it. Interesting. And so you mentioned, I think earlier, it was 104 asteroids were discovered. Is that the um, the contribution so far, or has there been more discoveries? Uh, so let me think. So for from Thor specifically, that's the main, I think that's the main submitted contribution so far. Thor was also run against the ZTF data set in order to basically do a completeness comparison because uh, ZTF does discover asteroids. And so uh, so Thor was kind of run against that to see, you know, head to head, how many could it recover out of that. We've also done a number of uh, submissions uh, not of new discoveries, but recoveries of uh, what are known as the JPL and ESA riskless. Uh, so these are these are the the objects that have some non-zero chance of hitting Earth someday in the future. Uh, and so we regularly take those. I think it's like roughly twelve hundred objects or whatever it is. Run them through recovery and generate new. You know, when we find new new observations of those, we we submit those in kind. So we are gearing up to do hopefully many, many more discoveries uh, with Thor. And, and part of that is kind of building a whole pipeline around processing all the results and and making sure all our T's are crossed and I's are dotted for before submitting. Right. And the JPL is the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, NASA's JPL. And I've actually been on that site to look at their list of near-Earth objects, I guess. So eventually, is that list then uh, you would be adding to or or adjusting that list I guess over time yeah um yeah so uh by by refining the orbits uh what happens is once new observations would get accepted into the minor planet center uh then uh JPL will essentially at some point take those new observations and they have their own system where they will kind of recalculate the orbit uh, with their system and then they do basically uh, an analysis that provides impact probability uh, chances off of that. Yeah, interesting. And so now I wanted to ask about machine learning because I, I gather that's maybe something that is not being done yet, but to the extent that funding permitted, uh, is that something that you would be pursuing? And is there other, you know, kind of major, um, major avenues that you could explore with more funding for, uh, for your project? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's there's a variety of different cases. Um, you know, some of the most straightforward ones are uh, take recovery, for instance. You know, all the time it's easy for us to come up with candidates for new observations for objects. 
but uh, it often takes additional analysis. And many times uh, that's still not automated. Uh, we have to have a human look at the candidate and say, is this realistic or is it an artifact in, in the image or is it uh, obviously, you know, trailed in the wrong wrong way or is this not a moving object there's just bad seeing between two different nights and and the catalog or we thought it was a moving object but really it's a it's a star or something and so uh it'd be i think it would be um a slam dunk to you know use what are now considered pretty traditional machine learning algorithms to say uh categorize those candidates as basically you know probabilities of of being good or bad some some other potential areas would involve uh say deciding which test orbits for Thor to run through a particular data set. Test orbit selection is something we talk about a lot because it has a big impact in terms of how much computation is performed and uh, what comes out the other side. Uh, and so, you know, a potential version of Thor that would, you know, use machine learning, taking the input, op some knowledge about the input observations and being able to uh, automatically recommend certain test orbits within that selection, I think would make a big difference in terms of cutting down on unnecessary computation and kind of maximizing the discovery that comes out the other side. Mm, yeah, imagine. And so both, this would be both unsupervised and supervised machine learning, I guess both could be used. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. Probably in, in uh, both cases, you could probably use both supervised and unsupervised. Yeah. Mm. Oh. Is there any other technology coming online or proposed that would help in the whole mission of planetary defense? I, I think you mentioned the Vera Rubin Observatory, which is, has it started yet or is it about to start? Um, so I think, uh, I believe the current schedule is, I think they're getting, it's, it's going to be at least over a year before Vera Rubin is coming online. Uh, and that is going to be kind of a, a shift in the whole landscape in terms of how the, uh, how the science is done just from the sheer volume and size of the data that it's going to produce is going to be, you know, orders of magnitude greater than, than what we have so far. And so when we, we think about this a lot, because when, when we talk about kind of Adam and, 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 and making the platform scalable, one of our biggest goals is being ready to adapt to the scale of uh, Vera Rubin and the LSST survey um, because there's, it's, it's going to basically, require, you know, 10 to a hundred times more compute easily, uh, than, uh, what we could do now based off of existing surveys. Well, that's, and that would be a major leap. Yeah. It's interesting to think about all of you, not just planning for current technology, but also for, for future technology. So it's, it's good to know, I guess, that there's that new source that's coming on soon and, and, you know, hopefully the resources are there to, um, to be able to process it all. Um, I wanted to ask, I understand there was a Pew Research Center survey conducted not too long ago that indicated actually surprisingly high number of Americans are concerned about planetary defense um, because I guess it, it doesn't get a lot of press. But in terms of space exploration, uh, I understand that 60% of Americans think that the first priority for space ex exploration should be to monitor asteroids and other objects that could hit the Earth. And I'm wondering, you know, how that high level of public interest is affecting your work? Uh, and then also, is there anything that the public can do to contribute to your work? Yeah, thank you. Uh, so we saw that uh, study as well. Um, you know, we thought it was particularly encouraging, given given our interests. I would say um, that, you know, that study and the broad interest hasn't, to my knowledge, uh, broadly impacted the, the work 
yet that we're doing. Uh, we don't currently have any citizen science opportunities live right now. Uh, it's definitely something we would like to get involved with, uh, aside from the fact that, you know, if there are people out there who are uh, maybe more software inclined, uh, you know, we we do welcome volunteers to kind of join us and work on our, we have a variety of open source libraries that we develop and we, we very much welcome uh, help and contribution for those. Uh, and then we hope that just you know, broadly, the public support for uh, our mission encourages other people and groups and organizations to to get involved in terms of uh, funding ours and, and other programs to try to, uh, you know, make this a, a more or less solved problem, because uh, it is tractable. And, and we, you know, we think that if um, uh, with enough support that we can build essentially that map of the solar system and keep it continuously updated and uh, have a lot more knowledge about what's out there um, and prevent any potentially hazardous impacts. And B612 does accept donations from the public. So I guess we can encourage any members of the public who are interested to uh, to contribute financially as well as uh, with their time if they have. We, we would love both. Yeah. Well, that's great. Listen, we would love to follow up on the the work that you're doing, and and you know, just to see how it develops over time. Uh, it'd be really interesting to share the story with the public, um, and hopefully, some good news. I think uh, you know, it sounds like you're really tying together so much in a very innovative and pioneering way that uh, that something definitely good will come from it. And so we'd like to be there and, and really understand what it is and and let people know. Uh, I think it, it's good, you know, with so many people interested in planetary defense, um, it'd be good to, to show them that there are good groups of people uh, like your group who are working on, on the problem very diligently. So um, that's great news. And we really appreciate your time sharing uh, this, the story. Well, uh, thank you so much. And, and yeah, we hope to continue to be hard at work so that we have some uh, really interesting and exciting things to share with folks. And indeed. And we all, we all hope that your mission of defense produces great results because we all depend on it. So, well, thank you very much, Alec. It's, it's been great uh, speaking to you and we'll look forward to, uh, to following up with you uh, in due course. All right. Thank you very much, James. Glad thanks. to be here. Our thanks go to today's guest and to you for listening to the quantum feedback loop. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out The Quantum Record at thequantumrecord.com. The Quantum Record is a monthly journal of philosophy, science, technology, and time, where you'll find the latest developments in our rapidly evolving technological world.